Well, please uh, turn with me once again to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. First Corinthians 13, looking again at verses 4 through 7, as we continue to look at this love chapter, uh, thinking about it as a description of the love of our Savior Jesus Christ and the love that he calls us to have for one another. And today we're going to look at another one of Paul's negative descriptions, what love is not. Uh, love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Uh, so let's give our attention to the hearing of God's word now. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and love never ends. I wonder, have you ever found yourself unhappy at the well-being of others because of their lot in life? because of some gift that they might have, because of some good that has come their way? Have you ever burned with envy? Have you ever boasted uh, to create an appearance, whether real or a fake, to establish a rep reputation? Uh, bragging, I think, is still, by and large, looked down upon in our society, but very often it can still come in what we call today the form of a, a humble brag, Right, where we find a way to self-deprecate while at the same time keeping the attention on ourselves. Or how about being rude? Have you ever been harsh, cold, or inconsiderate towards someone? Now, I, I think if I were at this point to say, I want everybody to raise their hand who said yes to any of those questions, undoubtedly every single one of us would have to raise our hands this morning, because the truth is, we have done these things. We have been envious. We, we have been, uh, boasted with an arrogant attitude, and we have been rude to others. And that's a reminder to us that 1 Corinthians 13, instead of being a, a nice, encouraging poem about love, it is, first of all, a passage that challenges us to the core. Because it exposes our love problem. On the one hand, when Paul describes what love is, we realize quickly, don't we, how far we still have to go in learning to love the way Jesus loves. And when Paul describes negatively what love is not, it feels as though Paul is describing us <laughs> in many ways. We've all felt envy. We've all boasted in different ways. We've all been arrogant and rude at times. But Jesus, in his extraordinary act of love, seen in John 13, when he washed his disciples' feet, illustrates that he is everything we are not. He shows us a love that does not envy or boast, that is not 
arrogant or rude. He shows us instead positively a love that is generous and humble and even considerate. He teaches us that love operates with the mindset that others are more significant than ourselves. But before we look at that passage this morning to see this love of Jesus illustrated, I want to take a close look at each of the words Paul uses here, because I think actually each one is chosen very carefully. He's actually already used these words up to this point in 1 Corinthians when he's been rebuking them for the way that they were treating one another. They were envious. They were boastful. They were arrogant. And they were being rude. In other words, they were not loving each other. So notice, first of all, something that all of these words have in common. They all relate to how we handle the good things that happen in life. Good things that may come to others or to ourselves. You know, we know how difficult it can be to deal with bad things that come our way. The setbacks, the challenges, the disappointments, and the discouragements. But truth is, sometimes it's just as hard to handle the good things in a godly way. And so, envy, first of all. Envy has to do with our sinful response to the good that others experience. While in the context of Corinth, boasting, arrogance, and even rudeness are connected with how we sinfully respond to good that comes our way. So the New Testament word for envy, it literally means to, to, to burn or even to boil. So some translate this as love does not burn with envy. Envy is the, the resentment we feel over someone else's good. The, the inward pain we experience when others prosper in some way. Instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice, envy is dissatisfied and opposed to the happiness of others. Envy, I think 1 Corinthians 13 is also making it clear, is actually a form of hostility. It is not merely desiring what other people have, the sin of coveting. It includes within it the desire to see others lose what they have. A perfect example of this would be Joseph and his brothers, right, who were so envious of their favored brother. What did they do? They threw him into a pit and they sold him into slavery to get rid of him and because they wanted him to lose that status he had with his father. The Corinthians, though, they too were envious. Uh, back in chapter 3, Paul accused them of envy. And envy was producing, in, that, in this, the Corinthian context, one of its fruits, strife. Wherever there is envy, there will be strife. And in Corinth, this was a community of believers with sharp differences over over leaders, over certain convictions, over most immediately spiritual gifts. Remember, wrong-headed thinking about certain gifts had created this uh, spirit of superiority among some and a, a spirit of competition among all. And instead of seeing the good in other people and rejoicing in it, 
They criticized each other. They boasted in themselves, puffing themselves up, and they diminished the value of others. And God was saying to them, God's word is saying to us, this is something love never does. Love does not begrudge another for something they received. Love does nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility counts others more important than oneself. And so envy has to do with how we respond to the well-being of others. But then there are sins we need to avoid when, when we experience good in our own lives, some success, some gift, some blessing. And so love does not boast. Or we might say love does not brag. In other words, the, the loving person does not look for attention for his or her success or gifts or accomplishments. So what that really means when we boast or we brag, we are, we are failing to love others because we're too busy loving ourselves. See, boasting is a sin that we commit with our words. And we can boast in just about anything, can't we? Our career, our knowledge, our success, our accomplishments, uh, our possessions, our kids, our grandkids, and so on. Boasting is like our own personal advertising business where we publish an image of ourselves that we want everyone else to admire. I think much of what goes on on social media today is, at the end of the day, a form of boasting. People boast in their opinions, boast in their accomplishments and their successes or their families. But you see, what comes out of our mouths or what comes from our keyboards comes from our hearts. And so Paul lists arrogance alongside of boasting. Arrogance is a, a sinful attitude. If we have an arrogant attitude, we are going to boast in ourselves. And as we'll see in just a moment, we're going to be rude to others that we look down upon. Now, the word picture in the New Testament for, for arrogance is is puffed up. When I hear that, I always think of the puffer fish. You know what I'm talking about? That fish that puffs itself up with air to make itself look bigger than it really is. Love doesn't do that. Love does not inflate its own importance. And one more thing love doesn't do, it isn't rude. In the Corinthian context where some Christians are thinking of others, remember, I don't need you. I can get by just fine without you. Thank you very much. Paul is talking about how we treat people when we think that we are better than they are, superior to them. And so arrogance, an inflated sense of self, drives us to not only boast in ourselves, but to be rude to people who you know, we think have nothing to offer to us. And Paul is teaching us to see all of this, envy, boasting, arrogance, rudeness, as the antithesis of love, the absence of love. Not merely its absence, but its opposite. And these were all problems in Corinth. Some of them burned with envy. Some of them were boasting in their spiritual gifts. Some of them had an inflated sense of their own importance in the life of the church. And so throughout the letter, Paul has been accusing them of 
arrogance. In fact, back in chapter 5, verse 2, he just came right out and said it. You are arrogant. How's that for pastoral directness from the Apostle Paul? And so here Paul is helping them trace the problem to its root. The root of the spiritual problem was a lack of love. And friends, this can be our problem too. When we're envious or arrogant, why do we burn with envy? Why why are we so concerned that others think that we're important? Because at the end of the day, we love ourselves and we fail to love one another the way that Jesus calls us to. And what we need then, what we need is more and more of the love of Jesus, a deeper understanding of his love for us And we need more of his love in us as we seek to learn to love one another. I think we can see Jesus' love throughout his life and ministry. But one place where we can see how his love is not envious, not boastful, not arrogant or rude, is in John chapter 13. Here we see the very opposite of Paul's negative description. We see a love that is generous and humble And consider it in John 13 when Jesus washed his disciples' feet. So I want to reflect upon this passage with you for just a few minutes. Let's remember the context first of all. This is just hours before Jesus will be hauled away, tried, condemned, tortured, and then crucified. All of that is looming on the horizon. Jesus knows it's coming. What's he thinking about? He's thinking about how he wants to share this meal with his disciples. And how he wants to show them his love for them. And so, John tells us that Jesus knew that his hour had come when he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. John says he loved them to the end. So before telling us what Jesus did for his disciples at this meal, notice what John is doing. He's drawing our attention to the love of Jesus by telling us Jesus loved his own to the end. What does it mean that Jesus loved his own to the end? It does not merely mean that he loved them to the end of his life or that he loves us to the end of our lives, though both of those things are true. The word that John actually uses is the word telos. It's translated end. It can mean perfection. In other words, Jesus' love for his people, it's it's perfect, it's enduring, it's everlasting, it's unending. And how did Jesus show us this love? How did he manifest it? Well, at the end of chapter 12 in John's gospel, Jesus announced that he had come to Jerusalem in order to to save the world as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's exactly what Jesus had come to do, to offer up his life as an atonement for sin. And so when John talks about Jesus loving us to the end, he's referring to the Savior's work on the cross, through the grave, and, and up to the skies. And so this is all part of the the larger context. 
in, as John's setting things up here in John 13, verse 1, which is really a transitional verse in John's gospel. It's introducing everything that is going to follow. And so when John said Jesus loved his own to the very end, he's telling you what led Jesus to the cross. It was all for love. Because he loves his own to the end. But there is a more immediate context here too. The extent of Jesus' love is signified, I think, in the very next thing that Jesus did for his disciples around the dinner table. You remember what Jesus did. He, he performed, we might say, a living parable that showed a love that is generous and humble and considerate. He, he made a dramatic display of a love that is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude by taking the place of a household slave, a servant. I think to better appreciate this act of love, we've got to remember that when Jesus performed this humble act of service, he wasn't forgetting who he was. He didn't forget that he had come from God and was returning to God. He didn't forget that he had come from glory and was returning to glory, that he was the Son of God, the Lord of glory, and flesh, remembering exactly who he was as the eternal Son of God. He did not hold to his position with arrogance. He did not boast in his status or treat other people rudely. Jesus offered himself in humble service to his disciples. And he illustrates that by rising from supper, laying aside his outer garments, tying a towel around his waist, taking a water basin, and then getting down and beginning to wash his disciples' feet. To, to, to appreciate the, the shock of this, we need to remember that none of what Jesus is doing would have been customary at that time. The Lord of a dinner party did not stand up. He stayed seated and reclined around the table. The Lord of a dinner party did not remove his outer garments and strip down to his his undergarments in order to take the place of a servant. He didn't tie a towel around his waist and get down to wash the disciples' feet. These were all things that a household servant was responsible for. And so Jesus took everything that anyone would have expected, turned it completely upside down. The Lord became a servant. Why? Because he loved his own, to the end. And see, when Jesus came to wash Peter's feet, remember that encounter and that conversation between Jesus and Peter, and we continue to see Jesus' love manifested here. Peter questioned what Jesus was doing. Lord, do you wash my feet? In other words, you're not going to wash my feet, are you, Lord? And Jesus responded in, uh, in saying to him that although you don't understand what I'm doing right now, Peter, it's all going to make sense to you at some point. But Peter wouldn't stand for it. He said, you shall never wash my feet. And again, Jesus responded to him, explaining that he was, he was acting out a parable of salvation and said to him, if I do not wash you, Peter, you have no share in, with me. 
You see, this, this foot washing wasn't just about cleaning dirty feet. It represented something that only Jesus could do for him and do for us. It pointed to Peter's need to be washed clean by Jesus. But what he said to Peter, you see, it's true for every one of us that we too must be washed clean by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Peter, if there's anything true about Peter, he knew he was a sinner. That's <laughs> why he started following the Lord Jesus in the first place. And so we might say with his typical bravado, he said, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So a moment ago, he's telling Jesus, you're never going to wash my feet. And now he's saying, Jesus, wash me from head to toe. Make sure you get all of it. I think Jesus then uses this as an opportunity to teach Peter an important spiritual lesson. He said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And he says to Peter, you are clean. So what is Jesus getting at here? Well, I think knowing the, the custom of the day sheds a lot of light on what Jesus is communicating. Because in that day, when a guest was invited uh, for dinner in another's house, he would, he would bathe, put on new clothes, and then he would set out on the road to go to dinner. So by the time he arrived, he was still, we, we'd say, clean, except now from the dust of the roadway, his, his feet were dirty. And so the master of the house, the host, would have his servants wash the feet of his guests upon their arrival. I think Jesus is using this social custom to make a profound spiritual point. When he said that Peter was clean, he was saying that Peter was already justified by God, already uh, forgiven and accepted by God. Unlike Judas, Jesus will, will indicate, won't he, that there is someone in their midst who is not clean at all. But the fact that Peter is clean didn't mean that Peter would never sin again. Like the rest of us, Peter would sin again. And, and when he did, he would need, we might say, a fresh cleansing. Not from head to toe, because his righteousness was already complete by faith, but in whatever area of his life that he was stepping into sin. He needed cleansing from the contaminating effects of sin, but he was already fully pardoned from sin's penalty. And so like a dinner guest who had bathed his body, but then walked along a dusty and dirty road, Peter was fundamentally clean, yet still in need of cleansing. And incidentally, if we could just make a quick aside here, this is one of the reasons that we have a confession of sin whenever we worship, because we understand that God's people have become into God's presence as those who are definitively clean, justified in Christ. We still come in need of fresh cleansing because we continue to sin. Now, as we think about what Jesus did to display his love, we have to see how he positively illustrates what Paul negatively describes in 1 Corinthians 13. So instead of being envious, preoccupied with his own well-being, Jesus is 
taken up here with the good of others, even on the eve of his crucifixion, the eve of his suffering, he's thinking about showing love to his disciples. It's amazing. Instead of boasting or being arrogant, we see the humility of his love, the Lord of glory, taking the place of a servant to do the dirty work of washing his disciples clean. And instead of being rude, you know, when Peter misunderstood what his Lord was doing, he patiently explained it to him. When Peter told him, no, Lord, stop what you're doing, Jesus did not get irritated. He kept on serving. And so you see, Jesus did what love does. He shows us that the, the, the generosity and the humility of his love. You see, having loved us this way, Jesus then calls us to follow in his footsteps. It's exactly the point Jesus makes in this story. When Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he was setting an example, showing us how we are to love one another. Jesus makes this point. After doing this, he sits back down at the table and he says, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And you see what Jesus is doing? He is arguing from the greater to the lesser. Jesus is teacher and Lord. Nevertheless, in spite of his position, or perhaps we might want to clarify and say, because of his position, because this is how things work in the kingdom of God. Jesus, the Son of God, takes the lowest place to serve. This is the greatest condescension and consideration imaginable. The Son of God and Lord of glory, kneeling down to serve and then stooping even lower by going to the cross for his sinful people. My friends, if Jesus did this for you and me, see the implication is that we should do the same for one another. That is the logic here. We are called to serve one another the way that Jesus has served us and the way that Jesus loves us. See, if we are the followers of a foot-washing Savior, then no act of service could ever, ever be beneath our dignity, can it? And Jesus makes it clear in, in verses 16 and 17 that it's not enough to simply know these things. He calls us to do them by setting aside envy, our arrogance, and dedicating our lives to lovingly serving one another. And then we will know the blessing of which he speaks in this passage when we follow the example of a humble, gentle, considerate Jesus. See, when Jesus told us to follow his example... I don't think he was instituting foot washing as, as an ordinance for the church. Though some churches do wash one another's feet as a, as a reminder of Christ's loving humility and as an expression of love for the brethren. But what Jesus is really doing, I think, 
is calling us to something that's even more challenging than washing one another's feet. He is calling us to an entire lifestyle of service, of humble service. He isn't inviting us, in other words, to take up a towel and basin and to do this on occasion and say, okay, now that that's over with, but to see ourselves, to view ourselves in the household of God as servants, household slaves of one another. That's what it'll look like to live under the lordship of Jesus as we follow his example in loving, humble servanthood. But you see, we'll never do this if we have envy in our hearts because in our envy, we, we don't want others to get and we're preoccupied only with what we can get, not about what we can give. Nor will we serve if we're, if we're arrogant and boastful because we will expect other people to bow the knee and serve us instead of the other way around. And so practically, let me, let me close with this. How, how can we serve one another in love? I'm just going to mention two general principles that we need to take and then apply in, uh, in practice. And we'll be done. First of all, I think we can serve one another with our words. We can serve one another with our words. I'll, I'll, I'll put, I'll put some, some flesh on that. We could say by not monopolizing conversations. By not always talking about ourselves and interests and always calling attention to ourselves, but actually seeing our words as a tool God has given to us to serve one another, to build one another up, to edify and encourage and Yes, lovingly challenged, turning attention to others and to the grace of God. Sometimes, dear friends, we can serve simply by doing less talking and more listening. Secondly, I think we serve by doing as, as Jesus did. Let me, let me ask you this. I'm asking myself this just as much. Do you see yourself as a servant of your brothers and sisters here at Trinity PCA? Is, is that actually a concept that shapes how we think and live as members of this congregation? Do we come to church on the Lord's Day with the prevailing question with respect to one another, how am I going to serve my brothers and sisters today? How am I going to express my love for them in, in humble service? And there are many, many ways if we are willing and our eyes are open to it. And we live in a world where, where envy, boasting, arrogance, rudeness, it's just commonplace, isn't it? People spend their days envious. Boasting in themselves, puffing themselves up, and being rude to people they view as lesser. So, how countercultural would it be if more and more Jesus people answered the call to love, the call of our Lord Jesus to love one another with this kind of love, committing themselves to serving one another? What difference would it make to our witness? What difference would it make? to our fellowship? What difference would it make if instead 
of seeing church as something that exists to serve us and meet our needs, that instead more we begin to see it as a place where God has called us to serve and do whatever we can to meet the needs of others. Friends, let's not look to be served, but to serve. Because we have a Savior who has done precisely that for us. This is what Jesus did for his people. Take the lower place. Do not think that service is a job for someone else rather than a calling given to you because the moment you begin to think that way, you are actually claiming to be greater than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Remember, remember how Jesus has lovingly, humbly served for your sake and then look to do good for others in a way that reflects what Jesus and his love has done for you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that your love is not envious. It's not boastful, arrogant, or rude. But instead, your love overflows with, with generosity and humility. We thank you for taking notice of sinners like us and being willing to serve and love us to the end by going to the cross to secure our salvation. We pray that, Holy Spirit, you would etch onto our hearts and in our lives a love that reflects the love that we have received in our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.